I start today with a directive. Think about the times that you have seen a dead body on the news. Some of you will be my age, so think about the times that you've seen a dead body on the news 15 years ago, before everyone was holding a camera. When did you see the body? What did the body look like? Did the body look like you? I have talked about the Christ that wants to kill you. I have talked about seeing someone die. Undoubtedly, though, there are different kinds of deaths. Different kinds of bodies. Think about when you see dead bodies on the news. Why are they there? What do they look like? What is the state of the body? When did you last see a dead American body? A dead British body? When did you last see a dead white body? And I do not mean a body covered in a sheet or in a flag-wrapped coffin. I mean a body, a bloody and mangled body, a body that has seen violence befall it. Perhaps I should clarify here. I am not talking about evidence photos. I am not talking about crime, or I am. I am. But I am asking you to pan the camera out a little bit. I'm not talking about an open casket or a car crash. I am talking about the strategic spectacle of violence. The first time that I can remember acutely seeing a dead body on the news was in 2005 during the catastrophe of Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. There were photos of bodies swollen with water and rot floating down suburban streets. Bodies by the side of the freeway laid down as they tried to flee and were prevented from doing so. There were photos of the dead abandoned totally by any governmental body with tarps thrown over them outside the Superdome. There were houses with body inside spray painted on them from which those bodies would never be rescued or removed. I was 11 on September 11th, so maybe if I had been older, perhaps that would have been the first time. Perhaps the vividness of the Iraq war would have been the first time, although Americans were not permitted to see images of dead soldiers, even in their coffins. I wonder if I have ever seen images of dead white children. Certainly we have enough gunned down regularly in their schools. Those pictures must exist. And yet, I don't think I've ever seen one. If you search for Sandy Hook on Getty Images, you will get 82 pages of images, nearly 5,000 images in total, but there's not a single drop of blood amongst them. There are 840 images of Columbine, but Although they show broken glass and crying families, there are no bodies there. There is a famous photo from 
1995 Oklahoma City bombing of the firefighter Chris Fields carrying the body of one-year-old Bailey Allman, one of the 19 children killed that day. Her head is bloodied and her shoeless feet are held at odd angles, but only Fields can see her face. There's another famous photo from September 11th, not of a child, but of a dead body. It's of firefighters carrying the body of the fire department chaplain Michael Judge, the first recorded victim of the terrorist attacks. He does not look dead, though. He is covered in ash, as is everyone, and he doesn't look specifically injured. However, it is one of the few specific images of dead bodies from that day that were widely circulated in the news. And when we see circulated photos of the dead body, it is always strategic. What images we see are a strategy meant to tell a narrative. Social media can throw a wrench into this sometimes as citizens begin to record things, begin to act as journalists. It could become easy for the official narrative of the dominant culture to become a little blurry. Still, the news will show you some videos and images and not others. There is also a conspiracy culture that will start decrying the legitimacy of things. They will see a video, see it with their own eyes, and claim it is made by actors or by AI. For a passive viewer, for someone unengaged, it is easy to be swayed by the picture and image, by the video of the dead body, and the picture of the dead body is so specific as to be almost scripted. Though it feels cynical to say so, a dominant culture needs the dead bodies of the people they find disposable to be othered, to be made into object rather than person, to allow the dead body to remain recognizably human with a name and an unmarred shape is to give room for compassion to Ethan from the viewers. Bodies that have been grievously injured can be shown to you, can be circulated, because in seeing that photo, you are seeing a body become an object and you can become numb to it. It is not a person. It has become a thing. So it is not a mystery that the bodies that you see on the news are almost never white or rich or even middle class. The United States will never show bodies of U.S. soldiers, but will happily show the bodies of Middle Eastern men to ensure the continuation of America's military efforts. Because if citizens see the bodies of Americans, they may start to question the legitimacy of war. There are exceptions, of course. <laughs> Videos of American hostages can be shown. Because in seeing their deaths, their pain, their suffering their bodies, this will reinforce the necessity of war rather than create moments that might question it. What is shown to you and is not shown to you is always intentional. The pictures that have found you are on purpose. Sarah Santillis writes in a 2018 New York Times article called When We See Photographs of Some Dead Bodies and Not Others that when it's common practice to publish photographs of war casualties from other countries, 
but not to publish photographs of war casualties from the United States, then the very fact of visual access to the dead marks them as other. Likewise, if the refusal to publish images of dead American service members is a sign of respect, then the willingness to publish photographs of other people's dead bodies can be read as a sign of disrespect. The term the lesser dead may be familiar to fans of true crime. It refers to the victims of crime that are not of priority to the police. Black, indigenous, brown people, poor people, addicts, sex workers. The phenomena of missing white children and white women being spread sensationally across the news while black children are almost never mentioned is an example of this. These people are the lesser dead. Their death is of less priority, less importance. Their dead bodies less shocking because we have been taught to see them, to expect them, even. The world was radicalized by videos and images of Black Americans murdered by the police in 2020, of the murders of George Floyd, of Elijah McClain, Michael Brown, Eric Garner, Tamir Rice, Ayanna Jones, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, of Breonna Taylor, of, of the countless, countless others. But we were also simultaneously inundated by images of death of the dead body, of the body beaten, the body subject to violence, the body left in the street as spectacle. We were inundated with videos of screams, of cries, of gasps for air. In her article, Centilles continues, if we are rarely allowed to see photographs of dead American soldiers in the news, then what does it mean that we can routinely view in every major media outlet images and videos of black Americans being killed by the police? Images, both those we see and those blocked from our view, send messages about whose lives count, about whose lives should be mourned, about who belongs to us and who does not. How do we grieve bodies we aren't allowed to see? When we see a dead body, it is strategic. Do these images shock you? Do they radicalize you? Do these make it real for those of you who couldn't see it before? Do these images establish a truth, a true depiction of events that cannot be bent? Are these shared to express hurt or express rage? Are they a call for retribution or justice or violence? Do you think that these images feel different for those who have bodies that look like those being brutalized? Does seeing the image make you realize that for the first time? Do you need the photo? Do you need to see it? And if not, who does need to see it? In Regarding the Pain of Others, a text I will quote liberally here, Susan Sontag writes that photographs of the victims of war are themselves a species of rhetoric. They reiterate, they simplify, they agitate, they create the illusion of consensus. Though her text specifically discuss photographs of war, I will ask us here to let it refer to just state violence at large, as there are so many instances we see photographs of the dead that do not fall within the narrow confines of war. Sontag writes, who are the we at whom such shock pictures are aimed? That we 
would include not just the sympathizers of a smallish nation or a stateless people fighting for its life, but a far larger constituency. Those only nominally concerned about some nasty war taking place in another country. The photographs are a means of making real, or more real, matters that the privileged and merely safe prefer to ignore. I write all this because I feel like I am currently drowning in photographs of the dead, of the dying, of the of those who are screaming for help and screaming for God. It is November 2023, and I cannot stop looking at images and videos of Gaza posted by Palestinians on social media. I think sometimes of the miracle of seeing it, of being allowed a window into this reality beyond the absurd obfuscation of the West, of even the most liberal media outlets here constantly begging for my sympathy for the state of Israel. I have seen more photographs of dead children this month than I have in my whole life. I have seen more dead children held up before cameras, laid out in front of people during press conferences, carried through the street, wrapped and then unwrapped for identification by their screaming parents. And imagine having to hold up the bodies of children to beg for any compassion. Imagine being denied even a moment of grief in a time of such profound loss and profound horror. In an article for The Defector called Bearing Witness to Gaza's Grief Shouldn't Feel Like a Radical Act, the editor Samir Khalif writes, When I share a video of a shell-shocked Palestinian child in a mask of blood or a street turned to rubble, I do not do so in the belief that it will be the one irrefutable example of Gazan horror that prompts a ceasefire and ends Israel's occupation. The limitations of posting online are quite obvious. There is nothing to win. But still, there is a purpose to, to carry a share of the grief. Sharing these photos feels like the only way to acknowledge these killings in a moment where many perceive them only as numbers in a news article. The inconsolable parent holds up their dead child in front of a camera. Others share the video to show that they, the parrot, the dead child, the other Palestinians off screen, are worthy of being seen. The lengths they go to to push back against their dehumanization is an exercise that erodes dignity. As Hala Alayan wrote in the New York Times, there is something humiliating in trying to earn solidarity. These images and videos are circulated constantly amongst my anxious, exhausted online circles. I see them constantly, all day, every day. In his article, Kalef continues, that is the cycle now. Scroll through slaughter, feel chest tightness. Listen to world leaders insist that the slaughter is justified. When I pass along these horrors, it is ultimately self-centered. I am not in Gaza, and that is not everyday life for me, but the response by some Palestinian solidarity in the past few weeks has made small gestures of humanity feel like radical acts when they shouldn't have to be. I keep returning to these photos. I keep sitting with them, unable to name the emotions that they are evoking in me. Although I have been consuming news this way for weeks, the images and videos that are staying with me the longest are the ones of the ambulance convoy bombing. Perhaps you know the ones I'm talking about. 
An ambulance convoy was fleeing Gaza's al-Shifa hospital, trying to get to the border crossing with Egypt. At this point, hospitals, schools, and refugee camps have already been bombed. The school year has been cancelled because there are no more children. I've seen multiple videos of this event from different perspectives, dozens of still photographs. It is a scene of chaos. There are people, bodies, both alive and dead everywhere, and people running amongst them, men and boys mostly. A horse has been killed and lies dead besides the ambulance, and there are stalled cars in the street. I've been trying to think what it is about this event, these photos, these videos in particular, amongst, amongst all of the others, that are so particularly striking to me. Why this event is the one that visually is coming back to me more than the, the bodies of children or the refugee camps or the hospitals. And I think it's, I think it's the blood. I think it's the sheer volume of blood. I am always surprised, startled even, by the real shock of the color of blood. It's vividness, it's, it's realness. It is strange that it is so hard to replicate. Seeing a horror film cannot startle visually the same way seeing quantities of human blood in real life can. Herman Nitsch feels like theater in comparison, but the shock of the color, the shock of the realness of it. In the videos of this bombing, the central ambulance is sprayed with blood, presumably from the horse lying beside it in a pool of its own blood. But the blood is everywhere. Huge quantities of it. People are lying in the street, some dead, some grievously injured, with their limbs twisted in unnatural positions. People are being carried, dragged over other bodies, and there is blood everywhere. You can see it soaking through the clothes and the shoes of those still living, those trying to help. There's so much blood in these photographs that it, it is impossible to find or even really look for the source of it. It has spilled out at such incredible volume. The color is shocking. Even in such extraordinary quantities, it is so red and so bright. I think of this quote by the 14th century British mystic, Juliana of Norwich, describing her vision of Christ. Looking at the body bleeding as severely as it had at the scourging, I saw the following. The fair skin was broken all over the sweet body and with very deep cuts into the tender flesh by sharp blows. The hot blood ran out so abundantly that neither skin nor wound could be seen, as if all the body were blood. There is no question that Christianity is in love with blood. St. Catherine sticks her tongue into the wounds of Christ to drink his blood from the source. Peep even invites her to do it. Juliana envisions a body so wounded the boundary between flesh and blood is blurred. Catholics drink the blood. American evangelicals are bathed in that I am bathed in his blood, they say over and over, a blessing and a testament. There's blood everywhere. Fanatical, devotional, eroticized. Still, the image of it, the, the photograph... Seeing it arrests me. Of all of them, 
these lovers of blood, America's Christ is surely the worst. He is starving for it, insatiable. America's Christ only wants death. His followers love death, their own deaths, so that they may finally be free of a world they cannot, or more likely will not, love or care for. They love Jerusalem only because that is where they think that their deaths, their apocalypse, their prophecy, they think it will begin there. The recognition of them as individuals who are better, holier, purer will be made universal while all others suffer. The trumpets will sound in Jerusalem and they can go home while the rest of us suffer in ways unimagined. They have no greater love than the apocalypse. They have no greater love than the moment they will be chosen and others will be cast out. They love Jerusalem. They hate Jewish people. They hate any person who looks like or spoke like or lived where their Christ lived. They do not look at the images. They do not see the pictures. And even if they did, it would only affirm their own holiness above all others. America loves Israel and hates Jewish people in turn. Evangelical Christians love Israel and they hate Jewish people. The American government is funded by evangelicals. It loves what they love. And what they love is the idea of a world where others suffer and they can go to heaven. And there is nothing complicated in this devotion. America loves evangelism and money and oil. And there is no version of those things that does not come from violence, from intentional and strategic violence. I've been thinking of a passage from Judith Butler's very good 2006 book, Precarious Life, The Powers of Mourning and Violence, in which they write about the frustrating conflation between any critique of the state of Israel with anti-Semitism. And I should note that they write this as a Jewish person. Butler writes, It is probably fair to say that for most progressive Jews who carry the legacy of the Shoah in their psychic and political formations, the ethical framework within which we operate takes the form of the following question. Will we be silent and be a collaborator with illegitimately violent power, or will we make our voices heard and be counted among those who did what they could to stop illegitimate violence, even if speaking poses a threat to ourselves? The Jewish effort to criticize Israel during these times emerges, Butler argues, precisely from this ethos. And though the critique is often portrayed as insensitive to Jewish suffering in the past and in the present, its ethic is wrought precisely from that experience of suffering, so that suffering itself might stop, so that something we might reasonably call sanctity of life might be honored equitably and truly. The fact of enormous suffering does not warrant revenge or legitimate violence, but must be mobilized in the service of a politics that seeks to diminish suffering universally, that seeks to recognize the sanctity of life of all lives. I am not Jewish, and I cannot speak to a Jewish experience, but I am American, and I am British. I am a citizen of both countries, and I know what it is to be from two places whose violence, whose greed and colonialism is absolute and never-ending. I know there is no argument in which the side of the colonists will be the correct side to choose, and the pictures and the videos are flowing out and unending, and the blood is unending, and it is not a difficult situation 
It is not a hard side to choose. There is no other side. Susan Sontag writes, look, the photographs say, this is what it's like. This is what war does. War tears, rends, war rips open, eviscerates, war scorches, war dismembers, war ruins. But it isn't a war when only one side has an army. It is only annihilation. It is torn and rended and ripped and eviscerated, but it is not a war and it cannot be framed that way. I've been so frustrated that this has been made to seem complicated. Particularly in America, it has been made to seem complicated. Being against genocide and against anti-Semitism is the same choice. Being against colonization, against colonists, against white supremacy, it is all the same choice. It is the same choice to be against the killing of black people in America. It is the same choice to advocate for the poor. It is the same choice to be against violent registration and rhetoric against trans people. It is the same choice to demand protection for immigrants, to demand rights for indigenous people. It is the same choice to demand that people have agency over their bodies in all ways. It is the same decision, and there is only one. The good man Jesus. The scoundrel Christ. Judith Butler says, There are no obituaries for the war casualties that the United States inflicts, and there cannot be. If there were to be an obituary, there would have to have been a life, a life worth noting, a life worth valuing and preserving, a life that qualifies for recognition. I find myself wondering, looking at these images of mangled bodies, of dead children, of ambulances, of hospitals, what is even the point of writing? How could I possibly add anything to this? What could I say that could be salient or that could reach any ears not already converted? The horror is overwhelming. The horror and injustice are baked in and not flaws. The cruelty is the point. And I will point to this Christ every time and I will make demands I know he will not hear. And I will look at image after image of blood and of carnage and I will have to then get up in the morning and go to work. And know that there is no option but to say what I can when I can and that it will not and will never be enough. I have started working since starting this project, born initially both from grief and the fruitlessness of a incredibly prolonged job search. I'm working as a museum educator for a contemporary art museum. Most days of the week I go into elementary and middle schools and teach lessons about California history and about American and Mexican cultures. My job now, as all my art teaching jobs have been, is mostly to help people make connections between art and themselves and history. Their lives, this art, and the place both of those hold within history. We ask, how do you see this? How might the artists have seen this? How does your classmate see this? What is the story between those three things? When we see this object, this picture, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to your community, to history? What do you learn from it? What does it tell you? And I have the extraordinary privilege of spending my time listening to children puzzle these questions out. They're always good at it. They're always 
quick to draw a line between points. And now, after these lessons, I go home or I go back to the office of the museum and I stare at my computer as image after image of the bodies of children the same age, younger, so young they haven't yet been named, that have been torn to shreds. Children carried by their parents in plastic bags, children carried through the streets, children now parentless, comforted by strangers. As I write this, more than 10,000 people have been killed in Gaza, more than half of them children. The number will only get higher. A child is killed every 10 minutes, and that statistic doesn't even count those buried under rubble or those who are dying of hunger or thirst. And so I think now, gesturing to you, to, to me, to the children I teach in schools every day, to history, to culture, we are sitting together as students of art history, as artists, and we have to unspool these things together, these images. When you see the images of the dead, what are you seeing? When do you see them? Who shows them to you? How do the images of the dead radicalize you? Do you think of what you were shown and always, more importantly, what you are not? Do you think that the images of bodies shown are chosen to tell you one story when others are possible? Are you seeing the pictures, the videos of bodies and of blood? Are you turning away from them? When they come before you, do you look away? Are you angry? Are you looking? How do you feel? How is your heart looking at this? Are you looking at the body of the child or the parent holding the body? Are you looking? My name is Liz Hamilton. This is All Miracles Are Strange. Call your representatives demand a ceasefire, demand a divestment of funds, do not let them forget, do not be quiet, do not look away. Thank you.